Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. If you have one of the Bibles we've given you, you can turn to page 832. And today we'll start reading at verse 30. So you want to find the little number 30 on the Bible page, and that's where we'll, we'll start reading. Before we read, I want to start with a question. And that question is, how alert are you to the dangers around you? A few weeks ago when we had the big freeze and we all lost power, I think we were all renewed in our alertness to the fact that our modern existence is rather fragile and that it can be taken away with just a few uh, switches going off the wrong way. But the truth is, there are dangers all around us. You know, all of us drove through intersections today, and by God's grace, no one ran the red light. I was once alerted to the dangers around me when we had to have a, uh, someone from the local fire department inspect our home as part of our adoption process. And at the time, we were living in a house that had been built in the 1950s in Bryan, and this man walked all over our house and basically told us all of the ways that we could die in a fire, and very well might. It was an alarming conversation. We need sometimes to be made aware of those unseen dangers around us, those things that we take for granted. And I think that's one of the things Jesus intends to do for us in this passage, to take our eyes off the things that we see immediately around us and understand what's most serious, what we need to be most alert to. So that in mind, let's read this passage, Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Thank you, God. 
We pick up this story in the middle. Jesus has just had what we call the Last Supper with his disciples in Jerusalem. And our passage begins with them singing a hymn there in that room and then leaving that room and the city of Jerusalem and proceeding east across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, which was, again, just to the east of Jerusalem. But it's, before we move into the main part of the message this morning, I want to just stop and consider this detail that Jesus sang. The disciples and Jesus sang this song together. Now we've already sung a few songs today. We take it for granted that when Christians gather for worship, they will sing. But it's good to remember why we sing. We see this pattern of singing throughout the scriptures. We see it commanded in the scriptures in the Apostle Paul's writings. But here we see Jesus's own example of singing. Jesus and his disciples sang together. We, we probably would find this sort of weird to end a dinner party with a song. It's just not part of our culture anymore to sing in our homes as much as we used to. Generations ago, not even that, not that long ago, the only music someone might have ever heard might have been the music they made themselves in their own homes, music they made with their voices. But now it's common to hear music on our phones. We hear music always with us all the time. But here Jesus sang. He sang with his disciples. There's something that's uniquely encouraging about singing together with God's people. When we hear the voices of God's people join together and we profess God's truth out loud and in harmony and with melody, it encourages our faith. It encourages our faith in a way that's different from hearing a song on the radio, even a song that we really like. You can belt out a song in your shower and enjoy it or in your car, but it's not the same as being here with God's people and being encouraged as we sing together. Even if you're a bad singer, it can be fun to sing with a group of people. I can't help but wonder if in this case, the mention of Jesus singing at this point has to do with the fact that he's about to become so sorrowful and that he's about to be betrayed. This can't have been the only time Jesus sang with his disciples, but I think it's the only time in the Gospels that we have mention of Jesus singing. This must have made an impression on Matthew that they sang before they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus singing here shows us something of his humanity. He is the God-man. He had a human voice and lungs. He could sing. And as the hour of suffering drew near, he sang with his friends. He saw encouragement, the encouragement that comes through singing. Commentators suspect that what Jesus and the disciples sang was one of the psalms that were traditionally associated with the Passover feast. So if you have a Bible and you turn back to Psalms 113 through 118, you'll find a collection of psalms that are traditionally associated with Passover that the Jews would have sung. If Jesus sang one of these songs, then he would have sung a song that was all about trusting God in the midst of suffering, trusting that God would deliver his people. So if this is how Jesus sang, then he would have reflected on God's faithfulness to him as he went out to meet his betrayer. I'm just going to read a few verses from uh, some of these psalms to kind of whet your appetite for what you'll find there. Psalm 113, verses 5 through 8, say this. 
Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. And then listen to Psalm 116, verses 5 through 9. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Imagine Christ singing those words before going out to the Mount of Olives. Or Psalm 118, 5 through 7. Out of my darkness, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. I begin with this reflection on Jesus and his disciples singing because it sets the stage for what's to come. In Christ's hour of suffering, the man Christ Jesus sang. He sought ballast for his soul, his troubled soul, in singing God's truth. And at the same time, Jesus the Good Shepherd was trying to lead his disciples to the place where they could find strength. Because even as he suffered, they were going to be tried as well. But as we read in this passage, the disciples failed to turn to God in their moment of trial. As they stared down the suffering of Jesus and their own trial, they were proud and they were defensive of themselves. And they were uncaring about what was going on. And so this passage presents us with a, a stark contrast. It shows us two ways of responding to the sufferings of Christ. First, there's the way Christ himself responded to his own sufferings. Christ, the God-man, he sang God's truths. He trusted in God's word. In the midst of the trial, he humbled himself and he prayed. He poured out his heart to God on his face in prayer. And that's one response. But then there's the response of the disciples. They sang with Christ, but from there they completely fell apart. And so this morning we're going to let the disciples show us how not to respond to the shame of the cross. So here's the three, three responses of the disciples. The disciples ignored God's word. They ignored God's word. The disciples relied on themselves. That's number two. They relied on themselves. And number three... The disciples slept. They slept. Let's look at this first way they responded to the shame of the cross. They ignored God's word. So after they sang the song, they leave the place where they'd eaten supper, and they move out east of the city to the Mount of Olives. And once they arrive there, we find this exchange between Jesus and Peter, who, as he often does, speaks as a kind of representative for all 12 disciples, or in this case now 11 disciples, because Judas has gone to betray Christ. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. With this first example of the disciples, I want you to notice how Jesus grounds his prediction about the disciples falling away. He grounds it with the scriptures. Jesus quotes from the prophet Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And we have this classic phrase that precedes a scripture quotation in the Gospels, and especially in the book of Matthew, it is written. Matthew is very careful throughout the Gospel that he wrote to tie the events of Jesus' life back to what the Old Testament prophets predicted about the coming Messiah. And he does it again here, the shepherd will be struck. But this time he doesn't restrict the prophecy to only the shepherd, only Jesus, but also includes the disciples. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Can you imagine what it would be like to be standing face to face with Jesus, who you have already confessed, if you're Peter, to be the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus says to you, you know, do you see this verse from Jeremiah, do you remember, or Zechariah? You remember that one, right? This is the word of God. It was written centuries ago. And it's talking about what's going to happen to you. I'm going to be struck and you're going to be scattered. Now, in that case, you would hope that any disciple would just shut up immediately and listen with all the attention they could give. And you think that would be especially the case when this verse in question, this part of the Bible is talking about you scattering from your shepherd and the shepherd's interpreting that as you denying him and being scandalized by him. But here Jesus is saying, for it is written, doesn't seem to phase the disciples in the least. Based on the way they respond to Christ, it's almost as if they didn't hear what Jesus said. Peter protests against Christ's words and then he doubles down. And it says all the disciples echoed him. Compare the way the disciples fail to hear God's word with the way Jesus himself continually responds to God's word in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 4, the, the great story of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Satan tried to twist God's words, but again and again Jesus responded with, as it is written, and he quoted scripture. He, he learned obedience through those scriptures. He learned to trust God by reading the scriptures himself. He knew God's word too well to be tricked by Satan's schemes. In Matthew chapter 11, we see that because of the way Jesus knew God's word, he's able to understand the true identity of John the Baptist. He's the messenger that Malachi prophesied about who would come and prepare the way of God. Even just in the passage last week, there's not an express quotation of scripture, but Jesus says, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Jesus read the scriptures and he knew the scriptures. He believed the scriptures. He submitted to the scriptures. He believed what was written about him and was willing to fulfill them even when it meant his setting his face towards Jerusalem, as Isaiah prophesied, to die. In this instance, the disciples have no ears to hear what the scriptures said about them. 
But Jesus believes he's going to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Seeing this contrast between the way Jesus read God's word and paid attention to it and the way the disciples read God's word should make us think about our own reading of God's word. How do you read the scriptures? Just to clarify things, we should say that the Bible is not about us in the way it is about Jesus, and it isn't even about us in the way it's about the disciples in this case. So I would not encourage you to look at your Bibles right now to find out what's going to happen to you in a few hours. That's not the way we read God's Word. But God's Word is for us. It is the living Word, and it shows us God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the Word of God, God the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and He shows us the way of salvation, and He teaches us God's law. Most importantly, the Word of God presents to us Christ and Him crucified for sinners. The Scriptures preach Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who died in the place of sinners. How do you respond to that word about Christ? What kind of reader are you? Peter and the disciples here didn't seem to pay attention to God's word. They were in too much of a hurry to defend themselves and to boast about their devotion to Christ. God's word for them was reminding them about the suffering that Jesus was about to endure. God's own servant their shepherd and their rabbi was going to be struck. This was a reminder that judgment was coming to the house of God. It was showing them that in the suffering of Christ, God was about to show them what their sin deserved and the only way they could be saved. At the same time, God's going to expose their weakness. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This gospel, this word about the shepherd struck for sinners, that's God's word for us today. And like the disciples, it shows us what our sin deserves. It shows us the only way we can be saved. It exposes our weakness. Jesus went through this agonizing suffering and death, not for his own sin, because he had no sin of his own. He suffered for our sake. So the gospel message, the message of the scriptures, would have you look at Christ and see what your sin deserves. Your sin deserves to be forsaken by God. Your sin deserves punishment and judgment from God. Just like this word of, of the Zechariah to the disciples, this scriptures describe us as sheep, sheep without a shepherd, sheep who desperately need the good shepherd. How do you respond to that word? Are you willing to humbly listen to the word of God, even when it confronts you? Even when it puts its finger on uncomfortable truths about your life, when it exposes your weakness? When you're exposed, will you turn to yourself or will you trust in the love and mercy of Christ? Do you believe that his sacrifice paid the price that your sins deserve. When God's word told the disciples that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter, they ignored it. But Jesus listened to God's word. 
He listened and he did all and said all that the Father had given him to do, even when this meant his suffering and death. What kind of reader are you? How have you responded to this word of the gospel, to the crucifixion of Christ? We see in this passage that the disciples not only ignored God's word, but they also relied on themselves. That's the second way the disciples respond to the crucifixion of Jesus. The disciples relied on themselves. As Jesus used Zechariah to tell them that they would scatter, they boasted about how they wouldn't scatter. It'll help us to figure out what's going on here and battle our own self-reliance if we can understand some of the different aspects of the disciples' pride and self-reliance. One aspect of it is that they, they downplay the seriousness of their sin. Jesus' prediction about what they are about to do should have shocked them. It should have alarmed them. They should have been profoundly disturbed upon hearing this. This is the kind of news that should have led to them having a sleepless night. But once in the Garden of Gethsemane, they aren't even alarmed enough to stay awake. Jesus delivers a message to them that's not too different than the one that God gave to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain was uh, contemplating the murder of his brother, God says, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Jesus is warning the disciples, you're about to fall away. You're about to deny me. But this doesn't lead to any self-reflection on their part. Again, they almost thoughtlessly respond. We won't fall away. We would never deny you. It's interesting to compare the scene we find in Matthew chapter 26 about the sleeping, the, the sleeping disciples and the awake Jesus to one back in chapter 8 when the disciples were caught on a, on a boat in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. In that episode, they are... I guess out on the deck, alarmed at the wind roaring about them and the waves overlapping the boat. And Jesus is asleep. And they go and wake him up and say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He responded to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he calmed the wind and the sea. On that night, the disciples were terrified. They couldn't sleep and they cried out to Christ for help. But on this night in Gethsemane, when he's just told them they're going to fall away, they can sleep like babies. Despite Jesus commanding him to, he commanded them to pray, to watch, they don't. But do you see how much higher the stakes are here? This is the unseen danger. They could see the wind and the wave and they were terrified, but they can't see their sin and so they don't care. They're about to betray the one who came to save them. But for the grace of God, they would just be like Judas. They would be permanently separated and cut off from salvation if they went along this path without any intervention from God's grace. See how much the disciples downplay the seriousness of their sin. They don't think it's a big deal. But look at how Jesus responds to the, the gathering storm that he's facing. Once they reach Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives, he tells them, he tells the disciples, Peter, James, and John, how troubled he is. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He knew the sorrow of bearing the shame and sin and the wrath of God. He knew that he was about to be marked 
as one cursed under the law of Moses. Jesus knew the scandal of the cross. And Jesus doesn't downplay this conflict that he's about to undergo with Satan as he seeks to conquer Satan. That's what he's about to go do. The Son of God is about to conquer Satan decisively. If you go back to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave this promise in the form of a curse where he promises that the seed of the woman would curse, would, would crush the serpent's head. That's what Jesus is about to go do. He's about to go crush the serpent's head, but it's going to mean the bruising of his heel. The disciples don't want to come to grips with the ugly truth of what they're about to do. When Jesus gets arrested, there's going to be no honor or prestige in being allied with Jesus. As he is convicted in this mock trial and beaten and spat upon, those who followed him are going to look foolish. The crucified Jesus will appear as if he's a great sinner, as an outcast. He's going to be taken outside Jerusalem as an unclean one and crucified. And when the disciples face the Lord in this humiliated, shamed state, they're going to fall away and deny him. They can't seem to face that fact. Friends, you can't solve your sin by ignoring it. Hoping it will go away is not an effective strategy. You see how it worked for the disciples. They ignored it. They ignored his warnings. They downplayed their sin, and then they fell right into it. So one form of this self-reliance is just to downplay the problems of sin. But the other side of this is that the disciples overestimated their own strength. When Christ finds the disciples sleeping in Gethsemane, he tells them in verse 41, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There was something noble that the disciples desire to repudiate denying Christ. In some sense, they had the right idea, but their flesh is weak. Their flesh couldn't stand up to the pressure. The concept of flesh in Scripture is a complicated one. It can refer to our sinful disposition, which I think is how Paul used it in the passage we read earlier, or Susan read for us, from Romans chapter 8. But flesh can also refer to just being embodied as human beings, similar to the phrase flesh and blood that we often use. And you actually find that phrase flesh and blood in Matthew 16, 17. Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you when, he, when Peter confesses him as the Christ. He didn't learn that from any human means. It came by divine revelation. The Greek word for flesh is translated simply as human being in Matthew 24, 22. And I think this latter way is the best way to understand what Jesus is talking about here when he says the flesh is weak. He's speaking of our, our human weakness when he refers to the weakness of our flesh. As Pastor Tim prayed, Jesus experienced this weakness. We, have, we experience this weakness every time we feel hungry and we need to eat. We need food and water. We experience this weakness when we get injured. So kids, your human weakness is on display when you fall down and scrape your knee. We all are susceptible to those things. Because of our human weakness, we innately recoil and, and try to avoid pain and discomfort. And I think we could say this human weakness is not just bodily weakness, but it's psychological weakness. We have kind of an inner weakness where we're prone to psychological stress 
And this psychological stress can even have physical expressions sometimes. And we need to see it's not sinful to have those experiences. This is part of the human condition. And that's why Jesus can say, my soul is sorrowful even to death. See, Jesus was truly man in body and soul. He had a human soul. The disciples overestimate their strength and their resolve that they're not going to fall away. But we know how easy it is to be resolved when trouble and temptation are some way off, right? After you've just had a piece of chocolate pie, it's easy to resolve that you're not going to eat another one. Sometimes. Depends on how much is left. It's easy to resolve that the diet starts tomorrow. Much harder to resolve when you're feeling snacky. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a proverb that marks the entire Christian life, and it should shape the way that we approach everything. We see how Jesus responded to his own human weakness. He asked this inner circle of disciples, Peter and James and John, who are called the sons of Zebedee here, he, he asked them to come with him a little ways further. He asked them to watch with him and to pray. He sought their companionship. And then he prayed himself. This is how a sinless human being responds to the weakness of the flesh. They humbly ask for help and prayer. When Jesus tells them they'll fall away, then I am, they don't cry out to him like they did on the boat, save us, Lord. They didn't know or acknowledge their own weakness. They, they overestimated their strength. If not for the grace of God, it would have destroyed them. What about you? Do you overestimate your own strength? When's the last time you confessed your own weakness just privately to God? Confessed your sin and your need of him? If you're a member of this church, when's the last time you shared a need with a member of the church and asked them to pray for you? Just like Jesus does here when he asked those brothers to come with him and to watch and pray. Have you confessed your sorrow and sin and asked for help? Have you sought out brothers and sisters to watch with you during your dark nights of the soul? When we overestimate our own strength, we don't seek that kind of help. This passage shows us where self-reliance leads. The disciples play out the words of Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. As is often the case, they're represented by Peter here. He insists that he won't fall away. The words fall away translate a Greek word that Jesus has used before when he spoke to John's disciples in Matthew 11. These disciples come to him asking a question from John, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended is the same word that's translated fall away in our passage. So back in chapter 11, Jesus pronounces this blessing on those who are not offended by him or, or scandalized by his work. And again, if you remember, when Jesus enumerates these things of the blind receiving their sight and the lame walking and the deaf hearing, He's summarizing his messianic work. 
Jesus is saying, when you see these things happening, you see the Messiah at work, and I am doing these things. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me, the Messiah. But now, the hour has come for Jesus to do his most messianic work. This is where he is going to display himself as the Messiah by suffering and dying for sin. And he says that the disciples will fall away. They'll be scandalized and offended by him. They'll be offended by him and deny him. It's like this is a, a mirror image of faith, uh, an inversion of faith. Paul tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But instead of believing in him, these disciples are scandalized by him. Instead of confessing him, they're going to deny him with their mouths. They are going to repudiate Christ. We have to see that none of us can overcome our sin in our own power. It's the height of pride and foolishness to think that we can. We're all blinded to our sin and our weakness. And that's true even of those with the most spiritual advantage, advantages, like these disciples who walked with Christ for years. Even they are not immune to pride. And as they ignored the word, as they overestimated their own strength, they fell away. And this passage also, though, shows us the uniqueness of Jesus. He is the sinless one. In the coming of Christ, the Son of God added, added to himself a weak and frail human nature. He became a man so that he could suffer in every way as we do, but without sin. But it's not only by his suffering that he saves us, but also by his righteousness. And in this case, I think we could say by his faith. You see, as Jesus faced this confrontation with sin, he humbly trusted in his Father. He enlisted the help of friends, and he believed in his Father's goodwill. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He perfectly trusted in God. And so he's the Savior that those who would fall away and deny Christ need, because he succeeds in perfectly believing where we have failed by denying Christ. There are none besides Jesus who is righteous. We are not only weak, but we're guilty of sin. When the pressure came, none of the disciples could keep the promise they made to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. They couldn't even keep it in Gethsemane to stay awake for an hour. Self-reliance is the enemy of salvation. We may think our sin is not very serious. We may think we're strong enough to withstand it. But this passage shows us where that leads. Within a few hours, Peter would skulk away after denying Christ three times in a row. We are no match for the power of sin. And we're no match for our Satan's temptations. We can't solve our own problem of guilt. So how will you respond to the gospel. We respond with the disciples' self-reliance or with the humble faith of Christ. The climax of this passage is Christ's great sorrow in Gethsemane. This is an area of the mountain, apparently, where there was a, a walled garden and an olive press. As Jesus approached the hour of his suffering, 
he needed to pray, and he asked his inner circle to go with him in the garden to pray with him. But of course, as Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. That's our third response of the disciples to the coming passion of Christ. They they'd ignored the word of God, they relied on themselves, and now their spiritual dullness leads them to sleep while Christ agonizes in prayer. Remember what I mentioned a few minutes ago about that night in the boat on, with the storm. Back then, Jesus rebuked the disciples for their little faith because they were alarmed at what was going on and, and Jesus was sleeping. So what's going on here? Are the disciples now the picture of faith because they can rest through this and Jesus is doubting? Well, clearly that's not what's happening. So again, what's the difference between then and now? One difference between Jesus sleeping then and his agony now is that Jesus knows his hour has come. Back in the boat, he knew that the Sea of Galilee wasn't going to overwhelm him. He knew that God had a plan and a purpose for him. That storm wasn't going to kill him. And so he knew that he didn't have to worry about being overturned. But now he's facing not the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of God's wrath. He will suffer and die. And as he faces this, he knows he needs the power of God to endure. He knows he needs this. He knows the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he prays. He also knows that the disciples need this power too. They need to watch and pray so they don't fall into temptation. Because they're going to be riding this storm along with him. You see, perfect faith sees clearly the spiritual dangers that lie ahead. And perfect faith looks to God for help. That's what Jesus did here. And that's what the disciples didn't do. In their oblivious pride, they slept. Are you as awake to the seriousness of sin as Jesus was? You know, Jesus doesn't have any sin of his own. He doesn't have that even uh, predilection to sin that we do. But he knows sin's power. He was tempted. This is Jesus' greatest time of temptation. And so he prays. Are you as alert to sin as Jesus was? Or are you more like the disciples? When the storms of life come, when the money runs out, or there's some family emergency, then you cry out to God, Lord, save me. And it's good that you cry out to God in those instances. But are you bothered by sin? Does your sin lead you to that crisis of the soul where you cry out to God, Lord, save me? Have you ever considered that perhaps the Lord brings these storms of life into our lives to help us see our need for his grace and the danger of our sin? We need to see the real danger that we're in apart from God's grace. The disciples slept. They slept in naive ignorance of the seriousness of sin. But Jesus agonized because he knew the power of sin and death and he knew he was called to overcome them by suffering their penalty. Now, one thing that we should be careful of is that we shouldn't imagine that this passage shows us that the Son of God suffered against his will. There's only one will in God. We know that the Son of God voluntarily took on flesh. 
And he did this in perfect union with God the Father who sent him and the Holy Spirit who empowered him. But what we do see here is a great mystery. We see that Jesus, according to his humanity, was deeply troubled in soul and he he asked for the cup to be taken from him. While Jesus, according to his deity, was perfectly at one with the Godhead in decreeing the salvation of his people through his death and resurrection. It's a great mystery. None of us can solve it. But I think there is something that will help us understand what Jesus is going through here. And that's especially about this cup image that we see. This cup image is one that Jesus has already used when he told the sons of Zebedee that they would drink the cup that he would drink. And we see this image used in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 51, 17, the cup is called the cup of God's wrath and the cup of staggering. Similarly, in Jeremiah, or later in chapter 20, uh, verse 21 of Isaiah, the, the cup is called, um, the Lord describes Jerusalem as those who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. They've drunk this cup of God's wrath. And we see the same thing in Jeremiah. He will send the cup of God's wrath upon his enemies and they shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword he's sending among them. It's a cup that he's going to force the nations to drink. It says here he's even going to force his own people to drink it. What I want us to see here is that this cup is not just the cup of God's wrath, but it's a, it's a curse that brings shame on the one who drinks it. It's like a a drunk staggering around who reeks of alcohol. Those who drink this cup are going to to stagger and they would become a a curse word to those who pass by them. Those who drink this cup will, will stink with the stench of unrighteousness and of opposing God. This is a humiliating cup to drink. And it's especially so for the sinless Son of God. How would we expect the perfectly righteous man to react to the knowledge that he's going to drink that cup, that he's going to be associated with that shame. Wouldn't we expect him to despise the shame? Last week I was reading in Psalm 31 and came across this pair of verses, verse 5 and 6. The psalmist says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. There is a righteous hatred of all that is sinful and shameful that should mark a righteous man. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus, the righteous man, the one who is wholly committed to serving his father, would want to be far away from this cup. He wants to be delivered from the stench of sin. We also confess that Jesus was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is perfect at fighting sin. One of the strategies he gives us to fight our sin is to flee it, to flee temptation. Don't even put yourself in the way of temptation. I wonder if Jesus is doing something of that when he prays for the cup to be removed. But isn't it encouraging, brothers and sisters, to see our Lord, who trusted perfectly in God's plan, there is no sinful doubt in his heart, and yet he prays for the cup to be removed. You can bring your cares to the Lord. You can pray for your suffering to be removed. That is a good and righteous prayer because that is what Christ prayed. But notice that Christ also prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's the way to pray. 
in our trials. He Pray for God to remove the cup of suffering, but pray for God's will to be done. In this, Jesus shows us what perfect faith and obedience look like. We can be sorrowful, even sorrowful to death, without sin. Jesus was. He laid face down on the ground and cried out to his Father. Because we belong to Christ, we can cry out to our Father in agony. And we can do this trusting God while doing so. I was reminded of King David, how he prayed for the child that was conceived in adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet had told him that that child would die. And so after the child was born, David lamented and fasted. He laid himself out on the ground and the elders of Israel gathered around him to try to get him to get up, but he wouldn't. He was acting in such a fashion that they were scared to tell him that the child had died. But finally, he figured it out because they're whispering around him. And we read in 2 Samuel that when he heard that the child was dead, he washed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. That's the same picture we get of Christ, isn't it? Three times he, face down on the ground, pours himself out to his beloved father. Please take this cup from me. But when the hour came, he rose and went out and faced his betrayer. In Gethsemane, Jesus went to battle against sin and death. He didn't dismiss sin. He didn't ignore God's word about his suffering and death. He stared it down. And Jesus enters into this conflict. He entered into this agony willingly for our sake. He threw himself into the battle. He steps in front of the moving bus. He did it for us. The disciples slept and then fell away. But Jesus fought. He fought in prayer to remain faithful and obedient in Gethsemane. And then he successfully endured the cross, perfectly despising the shame for the joy set before him. And he made the perfect and complete sacrifice for sin. Perhaps we have here a picture of what Paul says in Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While the disciples lay sleeping, Christ poured his heart out to his Father and confessed that he was finally willing to drink the cup that sinners deserve to drink. I mentioned at the beginning that Psalm 113 through 116 were traditionally sung at Passover. Listen to this passage from Psalm 116. Imagine Christ praying these words in Gethsemane. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all those benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Christ believed his father. Even as he agonized, even as he spoke in his affliction, he believed his father. He believed that his death was not in vain. He believed that precious in the eyes of God was his death. And the cup of God's wrath, when Christ picked it up to drink it, the cup of shame, the cup of staggering, becomes the cup of our salvation. Christ endured the cross despising the shame for the joy set before him. He despised the agony of the cross. He willingly took it on for the joy of obeying his father 
and for purchasing us from sin and death. We cannot save ourselves. We ignore God's word. We overestimate our strength. We sleep like fools. And then we fall away. But Christ succeeds where we failed. He is the eternal son of God who loved us before the foundation of the world. He willingly took on flesh. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He lived in perfect faith and perfect prayers. He called out to God in his agony and trusted the Father's will. He died on the cross, cursed for sin. But the shame of the cross is not the final word. He is no longer staggering under the wrath of God. He rose from the dead. He went to Galilee. He appeared to his people. He ascended to heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of God. How do you respond to sin and death? Are you sleeping on it? Are you more worried about harm that might come to your body than your soul? Listen to the word of God about Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you're straying like a lost sheep, come to the good shepherd who is struck for you. Don't trust in yourself. Don't sleep on your sin. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good word that you speak to us in Christ. We thank you for showing us what true faith looks like how we can pour out our hearts to you. Father, we pray that we would not be like the disciples in this passage, who ignored your word, who slept, who neglected the seriousness of their sin. Help us to be like Christ, to know the seriousness of sin and to call out to Christ to save us. We thank you that he made perfect satisfaction, that we can trust in him and we can stand before you today. In his name we pray, amen.